Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly and Julia Joja with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Katka Cech, a member of the European Parliament from Hungary. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Katka, you are on the... Uh, a foreign affairs committee of the European Parliament. You are on the subcommittee on human rights. You are also part of the delegation for um, relations with the United States. So you really are, in many ways, the perfect person to to have on the podcast. You were also selected by the Parliament magazine recently as the member of European Parliament of the year. So congratulations on that. Um, and we will definitely want to talk about your parliamentary work and about the role that the European Parliament can play in uh, fostering European unity um, in this in this current war that Russia is waging against Ukraine. Uh, but before we go there, it might be useful to spend a few minutes on uh, the developments inside of Hungary. So, so we did a few episodes on Viktor Orban and his you know, soft spot uh, for, for, for the Putin regime. Uh, we all watched with... Uh, great trepidation the run-up to uh, to the Hungarian election where Orban campaigned on the platform of keeping Hungary essentially out of the conflict out of the war and shielding the Hungarian population from any consequences well that has definitely not materialized right sort of the inflation is just as bad as it as, as in other European countries I think Budapest saw recently a wave of protests against the uh, austerity measures uh, that are being implemented by the Hungarian government, which are a sort of logical consequence of what, what you know the spending spree the government went on before the elections. Uh, and it's interesting to sort of, you know, we, we worry a lot on this podcast about uh, the, um, you know, the sort of political price of maintaining a, 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 a sort of forceful posture against Russia but it looks like the sort of real political headwinds in Europe are, you know, like blowing against the regime that has been the most Russia-friendly thus far, namely, namely Hungary. So, 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 do you think that has any potential to change things in Hungary? Are the protests merely therapeutic at this stage? Um, is there any way for 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 the government to to change course? What's 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 your read of of the discussions within Hungary, including you know within Fidesz, if you have any? if you're privy to, 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 to anything that's, that, that's going on within the party. Hello and welcome, and thank you very much uh, for having me on the podcast. Uh, well, protests are ongoing to the extent that we also had one this morning. It's very important to see that after uh, the election campaigns, we're full of promises from the government side that the only guarantee for not having austerity is uh, re-electing the current government. Of course, we in the opposition have already uh, said that it is an absolute lie to the uh, face of the population. And, well, unfortunately, we were right. And we see crippling austerity, uh, a very significant um, tax reform that impacts small businesses a lot, 
our currency is deteriorating so fast that even Hrivnia <laughs> is uh, more stable than our foreign. And uh, apparently many Hungarian families will have a hard time figuring out how to pay their utility costs coming this winter. And this all comes in the in the context uh, where the empty promises uh, from Mr. Orban about the special relationships uh, they might have with Russia, that they are smarter than the rest of the EU because they have it all figured out. This was just a big empty bubble. Uh, it's very clear that there is absolutely no special relationship. Mr. Orban was basically used as a political Trojan horse uh, on the side of Mr. Putin to have their man inside of NATO and the European Union. And uh, regardless of how obstructionist uh, the Hungarian government has been ever since the war broke out, how much they tried to water down the European sanctions uh, and uh, even uh, veto some of these, the Hungarian population is not uh, a centimeter or an inch for your audience, uh, better off than the rest of Europe and on the contrary worse. And I think it's uh, also interesting to examine why is, is it the case that not only Hungary, but the entirety of Europe, I have to say, was so blind to the threat that Russia might pose. Uh, and why was it that those of us politicians who have uh, been ringing the alarm bells uh, on this topic, on energy security, on close political ties, for over a decade, we've always been branded as uh, crazy, Russophobic, uh, paranoid, and all the jazz. And meanwhile, we are in a situation that could have been not prevented, but eased uh, if uh, we would have at least a little bit of a strategic foresight. And now, of course, the question is also what is the way forward for us, for the Western Alliance, for the EU? Uh, but I have to say that I don't really uh, see our current Hungarian government uh, with this all far-right leaning tendencies to be a constructive actor on this in the future. Let me ask you to kind of drill a little bit further down into what is happening, because as Dalibor pointed out, you have a unique perspective sitting in the European Parliament and in all these um, subcommittees and committees um, that are re so relevant to our discussion. So I want to ask you a twofold question about the sanctions. Um, the one is about the sanctions um, or the withholding of EU funds for Hungary. Um, over the last few hours and days, I've seen different assessments in the Western media about this, and some of it is pretty optimistic in the sense of um, this is the end of the Orban model, but again, we've heard this so many times before. And so my question is, I know that the sanctions or the the issue with with Hungary is still a few months away but what your take is on whether the EU will proceed in withholding funds and what the impact will be on Hungary and then also a second question related to sanctions but now focused on Russia um, we've all been especially here on this podcast rooting and cheering for every sanctions package as limited as they have been and we've had multiple talks um, uh, over the last few months that we witnessed over whether um, whether there will be a, a next sanction, a sanctions package. I don't even know the number now, seven, eight, <laughs> um, against Russia, and that would be with 
guess. Now I am, I'm opening here a Pandora's box because I know it's very complicated with energy at the moment. Hungary um, is in this, um, in this problem with um, Turk stream that the EU is not getting the flows anymore. So as we're not even close to um, fall yet, it seems like the problem of energy and the relationship that the EU has on energy is a big one. If you can kind of give us a few takeaways on how you see the situation right now and what you expect in terms of the unfolding of this as we're going into the next few weeks. So I would like to pile on top of that as well and and wonder if these are the really the first signs of a broader fracturing uh, that no doubt Putin has been counting on and yeah. people in the West have been dreading. Uh, so how how disastrous oh, is okay. this? Okay, uh, so I try to answer. Uh, both are very timely and relevant questions, I have to say. So let me start with the uh, first part, with the um, European funds coming to Hungary or not coming to Hungary, uh, which is, of course, a high, really, highly debated and very relevant one also for us Hungarians here. As I said, we are in the middle and going even deeper down a very, very, very devastating uh, economic situation, which is partially, of course, a result of what uh, has been going on in the world, uh, not only now, but also in the past years during the pandemic but also as a result of uh, bad economic governance uh, over a decade, uh, corruption, uh, cronyism, nepotism, and uh, the starvation of uh, our middle class and lower middle class. So in this context, uh, I, I think a lot of Hungarian families are really counting uh, their money and considering how long they will last uh, at the end of the month. And for me, it is absolutely absurd that we Hungarians could access a huge amount uh, of, uh, of European money that we could use to help our own population. Uh, it is a historic package. It's many millions of euros. And the only way, the only uh, obstacle of, of getting this money and using it for like, helping our own population is that the government is absolutely unable to implement very basic anti-corruption reforms. Uh, every other country in the European Union have uh, received uh, its uh, own share of the European Recovery Facility. They are already implementing the program, spending the money. And in the meantime, Hungary is, is still at odds with the EU on whether they would like to reform uh, their uh, intransparent public procurement system or not. And I, I feel now not doing whatever it takes from the government side for compromising is a huge, historic, terrible, inhumane mistake. And I have a very hard time imagining that this would uh, pass with our, uh, our population. So they would need to do a lot. And as a start, maybe they could also prove that they are good partners in the EU by not vetoing everything and playing along. Uh, but this is only the beginning. There would need to uh, be some fundamental reforms happening. For instance, the European Public Prosecutor's Office, uh, a European body that is basically um, tasked to check on the spendings of the European uh, taxpayers' money in the member states, is an institution where Hungary is not a member of. 
So maybe you could start by, you know, just joining this body and giving over some of the scrutiny powers uh, to those who actually give us the money. So it's not so complicated, I believe. And, 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 and also, as I said, reforms, reforms and reforms. And, and I believe that an, a very interesting parallel here could be the case of Poland, where I also don't really see that they have done what they would need to do uh, in terms of the judiciary, but they really managed to reform the, the perspective uh, of their uh, European um, the, of their European future ever since the war broke out. Because Poland and Hungary were always the problem childs, uh, we know that. But I have to say, and I have a lot of debates with the Polish government on a lot of areas, but uh, regarding what uh, they are doing to helping the Ukrainian refugees uh, of uh, being in a leadership position in the entire EU ever since the war broke out, uh, it is absolutely exceptional. And Hungary could have followed the same path. And what we did was uh, continuing to play along the lines of Putin, Orban actually branded Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, as an enemy of Hungary in the election campaign. They are making active points on uh, how Ukraine is not a real country in their own media. Like the Russian talking points are flowing back to us, uh, funded by our Hungarian taxpayers. It's absolutely absurd. So there could have been a possibility also for the Orban government uh, if they wanted to... Uh, wanted to repair their European image, but uh, very apparently this is not what uh, they intend to do. And unfortunately, the price for this will be paid by the Hungarian citizens who would need the money. But uh, I, I feel that Europe is really determined now not to give any more leeway because uh, it is absolutely at the brink of trust what, uh, what, what, what we are standing at right now. And uh, without se se serious, very serious compromises, this money will be lost. And it will be a tragedy for Hungary. And Mr. Orban is the only person at fault for this. And what about the, um, the sanctions um, the, or the next sanctions package and the problem of, um, of gas um, within Europe? What's your take on what we're looking at as we're going closer to the fall and everybody's panicking um, and we're afraid that we're going to stay in the cold in Europe and um, gas prices are soaring and the Russians are withholding it and the whole debate about Nord Stream 1. Can you give us your take as sitting in Brussels in what we're looking at? Just to interject, so there was a Reuters story this morning about uh, Foreign Minister Ciarto conducting his own talks with the Russians over Turk Stream and over sort of assuring supplies to Hungary, completely sort of untethered to any European discussion or any effort at coordination. Like there isn't even a pretense of, of you know, trying to like deal with the gas issue as a, as a sort of collective sort of EU community. Well, you know, my first uh, thought here is, uh, is, absolute difficulty to comprehend how we managed to get into this situation uh, because if we just like think about having the very same debate uh, after uh, Crimea was occupied and the Germans uh, still decided to move forward uh, with the Nord Stream project uh, why we did that is this is very very hard for me to comprehend and and also why couldn't be we'd be more aware of, of the risks we are facing in our immediate neighborhood. I'm just 
really always thinking about the story of the Lithuanians who managed to construct a decades-long project through every government they had to invest into their LNG supplies. And everybody told them, but like, why are you doing that? This makes no sense. You are just like wasting your money, burning your money. And, you know, they always kept firm that like, come on, like one day you will envy us for this. And well, here we are. So, um, yes, Europe was uh, crazily unprepared. I, uh, I think that we are taking very bold and ambitious steps. But of course, uh, it is absolutely necessary to move forward with our re, uh, Repower EU uh, plan, which basically uh, intends to help out countries in need, uh, also looking into alternative sources, because it's uh, very, very clear that uh, not even on the short or medium or long term, this uh, current uh, reliability situation is, is totally untenable. And, and here I, I believe that two goals coincide. Europe's energy independence, but also the fight against climate change. So we really, really need to uh, move as much into renewables as possible. Maybe also reconsider the discussions around nuclear, because, uh, well, I know that there are like a lot of taboos in this area, but I, I just feel it's a bit weird that uh, the green environmentalist uh, energy minister in Germany decides to turn on the uh, coal plants uh, before they would consider reopening the, the, the nuclear ones, which are, of course, much more cleaner uh, sources of energy. Yes. So I, I think we have to uh, set our priorities clear regarding new sanctions. Of course, we can also talk about new sanctions, but what I would really prefer is uh, also to have a conversation about the implementation of the existing sanctions, uh, because we could bring on the newer and newer and even more newer uh, sanctions package. Uh, but I, I, I really feel that we are doing a very mixed job on, uh, on, on what we have already promised. So uh, maybe we could also check on this as well. It's, it's a huge task, but I also here have to give a very big kudo uh, to the European Union. I uh, never in my life would have expected such a swift uh, and brave and united response from the European Union. I believe this is also what uh, surprised Putin, honestly. Uh, they uh, probably believe that the EU will spend like half a year arguing within it, uh, itself on how to react. And yet uh, we were strong, we were brave, we were swift. Uh, well, what are the takeaways for, uh, from this? Probably that we should continue in this path and even uh, in a much more uh, assertive and strategic manner for the futures. Because the uh, strength of the European Union will uh, be a very big uh, part in determining uh, the future also of the transatlantic alliance. Because with a weak EU, uh, the entire alliance is weaker. Just to be the devil's ad advocate here, um, if you sort of look at things like the rail links to Kaliningrad and the Canadian turbine for the gas pipeline and so on and so forth, this moment and facing the prospect of a long war um, that extends not just through this year, uh, but in the future, particularly if the Ukrainians are serious about wanting to reassert full sovereignty over their territory. So what do you think the longer term prospects are for continued European unity and even greater, you know, uh, efforts and constant suffering for Europeans uh, that would result, not 
not death as it is for the Ukrainians, but, you know, in a, across a volatile continent or volatile political publics, uh, just as an American, I'm really worried about, uh, um, uh, you know, we're off to a good start, but we have a no, very, absolutely. very long way and, to uh, Here, I believe in the next couple of months will be critical because I, I'm quite convinced, and this is not only my thoughts, but also the analysis that I read is that Russia won't be able to sustain uh, much longer if the sanctions hold. So these first couple of months uh, that uh, are left from this year and maybe the beginning of next year will be critical. And if uh, Europe manages to keep strong, uh, then uh, the economic uh, price eventually will be just too much uh, for the Russians to pay. And of course, the narrative uh, will be to drive us into easing the sanctions, uh, pushing Ukraine to compromise, uh, putting our very short-term uh, internal political interests over a longer-term strategic goal, which is basically a safe Europe and a safe neighborhood. And I, I, I'm quite hopeful that uh, this won't be the case, because if we just give in to Putin, if we show that we are weak, that we can only hold on for a very limited amount of time, uh, a very comfortable amount of uh, time, that what is the message we are sending? You know, we are sharing a very long uh, border with uh, um, territories that are not necessarily friendly. And I, I think that the future of this partnership, the f uh, coming next decades, will be determined in the coming uh, couple of months. So, so, so this is where we have to think on a bit longer term ahead. And of course, the role of the EU, the role of the government will be absolutely critical in uh, supporting the population to, to get through this, uh, to do whatever it takes uh, to, to help the families in crisis. Because the longer term uh, risk that we can pull on ourselves is the risks uh, uh, which are particularly in the nature of security. You know, Hungary, doesn't have a border with Russia, but we, of course, have a long border with Ukraine. And uh, during the first phase of war, we could hear the sirens. Uh, the people who live across uh, or near the border, they were not sure that who is actually being bombed. Where, where is the uh, situation going? And I, I think it was a very big wake-up call that we should not forget. Because uh, we are there, we are close. And we have to be strong and hold on and, uh, and, and, and keep strong also for the coming months and years. Because otherwise, you know, what would Putin do? Like, okay, like, I got so far, but now it's enough and I will just uh, focus on, I don't know, animal protection and uh, welfare of women or, like, I don't know, he's like such nice things. Oh, yes, of course. And also, I have to say that uh, in the Hungarian perspective, we should not also forget that we have a very sizable Hungarian minority in Ukraine, that they live there. Uh, many of them died in the war. Uh, there were uh, cities, as I said, where alarms were ringing, where uh, strikes were very close. So even from this perspective, uh, it's, it makes absolutely no sense uh, what uh, our government is doing, that they are actually bringing a more perilous situation to our own citizens living there. I think that really is the sort of scenario we all worry about, that you know, we, we can come closer to September and October. At some point, Putin will say, 
special military operation is over, whatever territorial gains I've made, I want to consolidate, and he'll offer a ceasefire. And then there'll be voices, not only in Hungary, but elsewhere, trying to sort of strong arm the Ukrainians into accepting some sort of settlement and into rolling back a big part of the of the sanctions for fear of of high energy prices. But if I may, I would like to maybe bring the conversation closer to sort of Hungary from these sort of big European themes. I was personally surprised by how successful Orban was with, you know, the sort of pro-Putin shilling going into into the election, that, that it actually worked. I thought in the wake of, of, of this invasion and, and, and the brutality we, we saw that it was just the sort of wrong political move. And I was, you know, I was, I was proven mistaken on that. But I wonder if you have any insights into sort of Hungarian public opinion at the moment. Like, you know, what is it, like four months into the war, five months into the war? Uh, like, is, is, it really, uh, is it really the case that the sort of dominant sentiment among the Hungarian public is, is that, oh, we just have to stay out of this and and we have no business intervening or helping the Ukrainians or anything like that, or or has the has has the mood shifted? And my second question related to that is from a friend of the podcast who uh, got scared last week about the prospects of, of of a possible Hungarian veto of of Finland's and Sweden's membership in NATO. Uh, I'm not sure where the concern came from. Uh, but if you have any insights into how the ratification of, of, of Sweden's and Finland's accession is going, like what the timeline is in the Hungarian parliament and whether there is, uh, th- th- there might be any risks of you know, Orban trying to sort of play some kind of tricks or, or try to extract concessions uh, in exchange for, for allowing Finland and Sweden into NATO. I mean, we know that they said yes at the summit, uh, but it needs to sort of go through through national parliaments as well. So, so if you like to tackle either or both of these questions, I'll be grateful. The average sentiment here, if I may start with that, is of course fear and insecurity, just like everywhere else, I believe. Uh, but what we have here and what uh, other countries don't have, lucky for them, is an extremely powerful, overwhelming media machinery around the government, funded by taxpayer money, plummeting uh, every rational discussion by overwhelming the people with uh, the most radical, the most brutal political propaganda uh, coming from Mr. Orban and his his circle. So uh, what we had over the campaign was an extremely surreal uh, way of constructing a message that would basically consisted of that if the opposition wins, then we would get in the war, then people's houses would get bombed, that their uh, kids would get conscripted. No matter, like, nobody ever said anything along these lines. But uh, it was just something that was uh, pushed on everybody, like, every single hour of the day, every single minute of every hour. And, of course, they got scared. I, I was even talking to some of my friends and... They very honestly asked me that if you win the election, is it true that you would like to send uh, my son to fight in war? And like, of course not. Uh, but this is the power of the media. Uh, or And this is also the pain of the lack of media. There is no space for proper discussion. And uh, this also is also relevant because ever since uh, the elections are over, 
obviously, as I said, there is austerity, there is uh, an interesting tendency where uh, the messages uh, towards Ukraine became a little bit more mixed from Orban, absolutely not to the extent that, uh, that where other countries act in the EU, but there is certainly an easing. There were even ministers uh, who, who toyed with the idea of, you know, we might need more soldiers, so conscripting is maybe not such a bad idea. Uh, so this all happened, but of course nobody ever reported on this, or those who did uh, are usually very minor or very marginalized media sources. So people still live in the hopes of uh, Victor is keeping us safe, and... This is why it's so absolutely relevant to have a pluralistic media to uh, be able to counter. May, may I interject real quickly? Who, in the public opinion polls, who do the Hungarians believe will win the war? Do they believe the Russians will win or that Ukraine will remain independent? That's a good question. I uh, think most of the people would say that I don't care as long as we are not involved. Uh, Putin is viewed much more positively here uh, compared to, I think, any other European country. But uh, really, this, this message that Hungary has to stay out of the war, which is, of course, what everybody wants and nobody said otherwise, uh, is uh, so at the top of the agenda that this is the only lens uh, through which people perceive the entire operations. Um, well, but is there a let's not anger Putin element to that? Yes, it's it's like they are hoping still that the ministers are right, that they might get some concessions because Putin likes Orban and this would keep us safer. But come on, like, Putin doesn't like anybody. This is not a friendship group. Uh, they are interests. So it's, it's not like, oh, yeah, hello, my friend. Okay, so there is this like entire war and geopolitical situation going on. But come on, like, I like the way uh, you have good stories when we had dinner. So let me just give you a little bit more of uh, or gas or whatever. Uh, and of course, this is the image that they would like to play on. But very apparently, uh, the utilities uh, will uh, be uh, increased to such an extent where everybody uh, will feel, I think, on their own skin that this special relationship that was never a case is absolutely uh, won't happen in the future. Can I add a little bit to this and ask you about, this is something that I, I think I've asked before, all the Hungarians that have been on our podcast, but I, I think in this context, it's relevant to understand how does what you're telling me, the messages from the Orban regime via the media, the fear mongering makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, we see it um, across regional countries to lesser or higher extents, but how does that fit with Orban's that he loves to bring in with every election, as we've seen with the, with the latest revisionism. Um, and what do you make of Ukraine's accusations that Orban was aware of invasion plans and actually wanted a piece of Ukraine? And, and then to draw it into a larger context, we've seen revisionist messages from the Orban regime over the last decade or so, whether they refer to Slovakia or Romania, um, less so Serbia, because they're such good buddies, right, with Vucic and, and their interests come in, as you explain um, very well. So how how does this um, 
messaging reverberate um, within the population of Hungary? And how seriously do you think we should take um, Orban's um, uh, claims of revisionism on one side and then accusations such as that from the Ukrainian government on the other side? I would be a little bit more cautious with uh, those... uh those discussions that circle around whether Orban was aware of the invasion and and about the deals that might or might not have happened in the background. I I am not sure that's the case. Uh, I mean, Orban has even fired the Hungarian uh, foreign intelligence chief as the institution reported one day before the war broke out that there will be no war course this was not the case and uh, there were consequences also so i i, I think that uh, this is more more of a, a result of a notoriously bad relationship between the Zelensky government and the orban government um where struggles were were very frequent also in the past around hungarian minorities and language laws where uh, there were some discussions over policy, which I have to say sometimes were even legitimate. But uh, this uh, really led to a point where the situation between the two governments were already so toxic before the war broke out. And what happened afterwards, really the uh, portrayization of Mr. Zelensky as uh, as an enemy of Hungary in the election campaign is, is really uh, the pinnacle of, of, of all this. And Really, what is very weird for me that this revisionist narrative, the protection of the Hungarian minorities abroad, have been a very big topic in the Hungarian political discussion for decades. And uh, of course, this is something that many Hungarians care about because they might have families abroad or they might have some uh, roots abroad. And of course, I think it's, it's legitimate that we care about our citizens who do not live in our country, but in our neighborhood, uh, have a good relationship with them is, of course, important. But here in the war, these people are actually involved in a conflict. So what we could do for for them is to stand behind Ukraine 100%, help them to keep also our own uh, Hungarian citizens safe to live there, prevent wars breaking out, prevent Hungarians being drafted. And uh, what happened is the complete opposite. And I have to say that I was in Ukraine just after the war broke out. I was there uh, with a delegation uh, inquiring from local leaders on, you know, how the EU could help and all that. And the Hungarian leaders were, were, were shocked that they were really counting on the help of, of, of Orban going into the uh, war. And what they saw was absolutely the opposite of uh, what uh, they would have expected from them. And I, I think it's 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 very difficult for for uh, for this mi- minority to comprehend that why Hungary is not standing with them why are why is this government abandoning them why couldn't uh, they prioritize their health and their safety and why the dealings with Putin and this uh, pro Russian narrative is so important uh, more important than the lives of these people but here I just have to add one thing which is sometimes missing from the discussion is that how amazing was the way how the Hungarian NGOs and citizens welcomed the refugees. And this was not the government. They were claiming credit for this. But I was at the border 
I, I saw what happened and it was only the small people, the local communities. This is, I have to say, this is one of the poorest uh, neighborhoods of Hungary. And there were villages where they put together what they had in their fridge or, or their kitchen to uh, cook community meals for uh, those who fled the war. Uh, they were housing them in, in schools, uh, in, in their own homes. And in return, they received absolutely nothing or very little financial compensation from the government side. So, so the government has not done a good job ever since the war broke out, but our Hungarian population did. And that's uh, what I'm very proud of. Delibor, why don't you take us home? <laughs> well, Katka, thank you so much. This was... This was a. This has been a. This was a brilliant conversation, and and I think we should bring you back on the podcast uh, sometime soon. But we are already way past our, you know, thirty minutes. Shocking! Mark shocking! We set up initially. <laughs> Where I have an unbroken streak of running over time. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So from Dalibor Rohaj, Giselle Donnelly, and Yulia Zosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. And many thanks to our special guest today, Kat Kacher. Thanks for having me. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. Uh, you can still sign up for our newsletter, which is in the works, and and we'll reach your inboxes at some point this month. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.